Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? You guys excited for Christmas? 
It's coming up so soon. I can't believe it. I'm super excited myself. I have the privilege today of bringing this series in plain sight to a close. And what I want to do is remind us the heart behind it as we get started this morning. So in this Advent season where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, it's important to remember God's providence and, pro- and provision that was foretold to us in the Old Testament of a Savior for His people. From before the beginning of time, God had a plan that includes us, and we should be thankful for that. It's a story that we see unfold in the pages of Scripture, a story of sacrifice, redemption, and salvation. You see, God's plan is hidden in plain sight if we would only look at the Old Testament with Christ in mind. And that's exactly what the writers of the New Testament did. They had Christ in mind, and that's what we see in the Gospel of Matthew as he's telling the account of the birth of Jesus. And so what we're doing is we're highlighting a few prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, specifically the ones that he fulfilled at his coming as an infant. But Jesus went on to fulfill so much more. He fulfilled hundreds of predictions from the Old Testament. As we talked about in the first message, there are no odds to identify the possibility of this being accidental or a product of dumb luck. It's not convenient, it's not coincidental, and it did not happen by chance. In fact, a Bible scholar named John Rhea, he said this, such a chance is so remote that only an omniscient and omnipotent God could predict accurately so many events and details and then bring them to pass. And so I hope that in this series, some light has been shown upon the prophecies of the Messiah Messiah and their fulfillment by Jesus, so that what once was in shadow is now illuminated and in plain sight. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I ask that this morning your word would go out and it would be received well so that we could come to know you more. Holy Spirit, reveal to us your word and the will of the Father. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So as we've learned, the Gospel of Matthew was primarily written to the Jewish people with the goal of convincing them that Jesus is king. And he does this by highlighting Old Testament prophecies that, of Jesus that show his kingship. And so I want us to look again at this evidence that Matthew lays out. So first we see exhibit A, Jesus is king by heredity. And Matthew begins his gospel by giving the genealogy of Jesus, looking at the lineage of Joseph, and he traces the lineage back to King David. And then we also see the miracle birth of Jesus it's this birth that the Holy Spirit caused Mary to, be, to conceive. And so it, Joseph had nothing to do with the pregnancy. And because it was the Holy Spirit that caused Mary to conceive, Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Now if we look at exhibit B, we would see that Jesus is king by homage Matthew then gives the account of the Magi going to Bethlehem to visit Jesus. They're coming to worship the king of the Jews. 
And as Pastor Taylor pointed out to us, the Magi sought the king, the Jewish priests ignored the king, and Herod opposed the king. Which brings us to exhibit C of Matthew. Jesus is king by hostility. Matthew shows that Jesus is king by the hatred that Herod has towards him. In fact, Herod was so jealous of his throne that he committed perhaps the most evil act imaginable, the slaughter of innocent infants in a desperate attempt to destroy any challenge to his crown. And it's here that Matthew introduces the theme of hostility that we see over and over again in his gospel, the hostility against the king. And then lastly, Matthew presents exhibit D, Jesus is king by humility. So today we'll see the humility of the king as we explore the last of the prophecies concerning the birth of Christ in Matthew's gospel, that he would be called a Nazarene. We'll discuss his humility, and we'll also talk about his humiliation. Philippians tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus brought himself low so that he could identify with us, so that he could succeed where we fail, and to bring us eternal life by the grace of God through faith in him. Jesus is king by humility. So we have these exhibits of evidence that Matthew provides for us to show that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. I also want to point out in this series so far that each of these prophecies we've looked at, Matthew shows us that geography matters. He ties each prophecy to a specific location. And what he's doing is he's demonstrating that the movements of the infant Messiah weren't haphazard, but the hand of God directing them as was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And so first we see the birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known as the city of the king because it was the hometown of King David. And Jesus was born in this city of the king, the city that everyone expected the Messiah to come from. But as we'll see, instead of being identified with Bethlehem, Jesus was only known to the people as the Nazarene, being identified with Nazareth where he grew up. And few could believe that the Messiah could come from there. Next, Matthew tells us of the exodus to Egypt. Egypt was the place of slavery in the Old Testament for the Israelites. And it had become now, in Jesus' time, a place of refuge for Jews who were in political danger. And so I'm, I'm blown away by how God caused this once cursed land of Egypt to become a place of blessed safety for his people. And it was here in Egypt, while Jesus was there, that Matthew tells of the ravaging in Ramah. Now, in the Old Testament, Ramah was a town where the uh, Babylonians, when they came to take the Israelites into captivity, Ramah served as sort of a deportation town. And so the town became known as a place of weeping. And what Matthew does is he compares Ramah to the anguish that was felt in Bethlehem when Herod had the infant boys slaughtered. And so we see so far, as we've gone through this series, that geography really does matter, showing so that Matthew can show 
specifically where prophecy of the Old Testament applies to Jesus. The king has come to Bethlehem, as Micah said. He went to Egypt and was called out, as Hosea said. And there was weeping in Ramah, as Jeremiah said. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fourth geographic location that Matthew mentions as we explore the notoriety of Nazareth. And today's key scripture is verses 19 through 23. And so in Matthew 2, verse 19, we read, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Herod had died and it was time for Jesus to return. And I can imagine the possibility that Joseph and Mary had planned to return to Bethlehem to raise Jesus until it was time for him to enter his kingdom in Jerusalem. I mean, where else do you raise a king but the city of the king, right? But God had other plans. Herod had died, but how quickly a new enemy emerged. It's like at the end of a video game when you finally beat the big bad evil guy, but then you realize he's got a second stage, or there's this new antagonist that you hadn't seen before. A new enemy was on the scene. Archelaus was cruel and crazy like his father, but he had the added distinction of being a less effective ruler, if you can believe it. In fact, Rome eventually removed and banished him. But it was right about the time that Jesus was returning from Egypt that a riot broke out against Archelaus, which he quelled by executing 3,000 Jews. So there was no place in Judea that was safe for Jesus with Herod's son in charge. And so they made their way to the district of Galilee. And then we read in verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, unlike the other prophecies we've seen in this series, notice the lack of specifics that Matthew gives here. He's not making a direct quote to the Old Testament. He just simply tells us that it was the prophets who spoke about Jesus being called a Nazarene. And what's more, nowhere in the Old Testament is Nazareth even mentioned. So what's going on here? Now, if you're like me, you might immediately be thinking maybe about the Nazarite vows of the Old Testament, where people like Samson and Samuel, they were under this vow to signify that they were set apart unto the Lord. And maybe Matthew does have this in mind. And in fact, some commentators uh, do make this connection but these vows weren't spoken of by the prophets. So how could this Nazarite vow from the Old Testament be part of that? I think there's more to what Matthew is getting at here. And so if we're going to connect Matthew's statement to the fulfilled prophecy spoken of by the prophets, there's two other options that we should consider. Another connection that can be made is to point to Nazareth's insignificance. Nazareth had become an insignificant, was an insignificant town. 
But we can make this connection looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Hebrew word for branch is the word netzer, which shares consonants with Nazarene, and it may carry the idea of having an insignificant beginning. So this idea of the branch was Nazareth, an insignificant town, especially if Nazareth was compared to Jerusalem. In fact, one commentary says that Nazareth is a weak twig in contrast to a stately tree, talking about Jerusalem. Now, other prophets like Zechariah and Jeremiah, they use similar language to describe the Messiah. And so let's look briefly at one such prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So there was nothing special about Jesus, at least not in his appearance or in his hometown where he was raised. Jesus the Nazarene had an apparently insignificant beginning, and it's in this insignificance that we see the humility of the king. Because as I said, everybody expected the Messiah to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And we know from Matthew that he did indeed come from Bethlehem, but that wasn't plain to the people of Israel as it's plain to us today. Jesus was identified as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And people would say things like, who does this Nazarene think he is? Or they would say, the Messiah can't come from Galilee, can he? What is going on here? These were the objections raised against Jesus, against his claims and his works. And that leads us to another way that we can make a connection to the fulfillment that he would be called a Nazarene, and that's through Nazareth's despisal. Not only was Nazareth an insignificant town, but it was a despised town. The people were said to be rude, violent, and uneducated. They had a lousy reputation, especially to the people of Judea and the people living in Jerusalem. Nazareth was so despised that it became a synonym for someone who is despised, a Nazarene. And so if we return again to the prophet Isaiah, we read in verse 3, this, this portion, Isaiah 53, it's talking about the rejected Messiah. And in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So the prophets, Isaiah, King David in the Psalms, Zechariah, Jeremiah, and others, they tell of a Messiah who is despised and rejected, who's hated and looked down upon. Nazarene was a term of derision and contempt, and so everywhere that Jesus went, he was identified with Nazareth in an effort to discredit him, to kindle the flame of hostility against him. We see this hostility of the king over and over again in the Gospels. It's a theme that's so prevalent, and much of it stems from his connection to the town of Nazareth. But if you can believe it, Jesus is even rejected in his own hometown, 
<coughs> Excuse me. Mark's gospel says that Jesus marveled at the unbelief in Nazareth, which hindered his performing of mighty works among them. And then on one Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. He claimed to be God, and he so offended the people that they were ready to kill him, throw him off of a cliff. Talk about rejection, right? And then, of course, ultimately, Jesus was rejected to the fullest extent and hung on a cross. The humiliation of the king. So that's one example of how the Messiah, Jesus, the Nazarene, was despised. And another example that I could point to is the disciple Nathaniel before he was called. We read in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So even Nathaniel, a local, he was from Cana, not four miles from Nazareth. Even he took exception to the Nazareth, to the Nazarene. But as Nathaniel came and saw, Jesus soon convinced him that he himself was the only one truly good from Nazareth. And what was Nathaniel's response? He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Warren Wiersbe, a commentator, Bible commentator, he says this, Because he lived in a despised place, Jesus was like a lowly branch, but the branch would one day blossom with beauty and great glory. Jesus went on to do so much more than just be the infant that we celebrate at Christmas. And if we return again to Isaiah chapter 11, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And if we took the time to read Luke chapter 4, we would see exactly what Jesus said in that synagogue that so enraged the people of Nazareth. Starting in verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, a, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus did come in humility as an infant, fulfilling the prophecies we've looked at in this series, but he went on to fulfill so many more. And with the Spirit resting upon him, Jesus went on to do such great things. He declared the good news, the good news that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. He gave sight to the blind, even to those born blind. 
He healed the sick. He cast out demons and he raised the dead. And chief among his works was to go to the cross. And so we celebrate Christmas because the king has come to live the perfect life we are incapable of and to pay the penalty for sin that bankrupts us all. The king came to die so that we could live, and that is good news for us. So I want to take a moment to think back to last week and ponder what it must have been like for the poor mothers in Bethlehem when Herod slaughtered their baby boys. It was a sad night, and it was a dark night. But I also want us to remember how Pastor Luis pointed out that the suffering that they experienced wasn't the end of the story, because the light had come. Christ will save his people. And so there's this uh, Christian monk named Ephraim the Syrian who lived in the 4th century AD, and he said this about the ravaging in Ramah. The slayers of Bethlehem mowed down the tender flowers, that among them should perish the tender seedling, wherein was hidden the bread of life. But the ear of corn that has life had escaped, that it should come to the sheaves in harvest. The grape that escaped when young gave itself to the treading, that its wine might give life to souls. And so again we see God's providence and protection as his plans play out in plain sight in these accounts. God protected his son Jesus by sending him to Egypt. And then that grape, the son of God, who escaped the grip of King Herod, he escaped so that he could later bring the wine of salvation through his crushed body and his precious blood. And as Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us, speaking again of the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Glory to Jesus. So this Christmas, I, I don't want us to make the mistake of just celebrating the baby Jesus because the baby grew up to be so much more. If we look at that instant in time that we've been looking at, with Jesus as an infant, we have the privilege of looking back into eternity past and seeing Jesus as the eternal God, full of glory. And we have this privilege of looking at that instant in time when Jesus was a baby in a manger, and we can look forward to see that he was the perfect lamb slaughtered for us to bring us life. He is our Lord and our God. He is our Savior and our Healer. He's prophet and priest and king. Yes, he came in humility. Yes, he was humiliated. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus is now honored in glory forever and ever. Amen. And so you see this shoot of Jesse became the vine that bears much fruit. Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so I want to acknowledge this morning that while Christmas is a joyous season, also to many of us, it can be a dark season. And as we've seen, the first Christmas was a dark season as well, but Jesus, the light of men, was in, in the midst of that dark night. I want to tell you this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus, he is with you in the midst of any pain you're experiencing. Jesus is with you in the sadness you may be feeling. Jesus is with you in the loss and in the heartache. But not only is he with us, he came so that our joy may be full. And so this Christmas, I want us to have to allow his light to bring us peace. And so whatever you're going through, I just want to tell you the truth that it's not the end of your story because there's so much more that God has planned for us. And so today we can make a decision to let Christmas time be a time of new beginnings. And we can do that and we can experience the blessings of God as we abide in Jesus the vine. Now to abide means that we remain in him, that we stay connected to him, and that we live in him. The Bible says that in him we live and we move and we have our being. But I think first and foremost, abiding means being obedient to Jesus. And so what I want to do with the last part of this message is to bring our attention once more to Joseph and his obedience. Joseph, the unsung hero of the Christmas story, because it's it's, if we look at Joseph, we have an example of how God leads his children and what it means to be obedient. And so one way that God leads his children is like he does in Joseph's life. An angel spoke to him in dreams. Now, God may not be speaking to you in dreams, but know this, God is speaking to you. If we would only listen, right? I heard something recently that said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. And if you want to read him audibly, read your Bible out loud. Now that's kind of tongue in cheek, right? But there's massive truth to that. The primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. But that's not the only way he speaks. And so I don't want us to put limits on what God can and can't do. But I also don't want us to neglect the Holy Scripture, the guidebook for life, the Bible, that's the primary way God speaks to us. And so if God is speaking to us, then what is our response? So as the band comes up, I want to show us or tell us that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have a responsibility to hear his voice. That's what our job is. Our job is to hear his voice, however he chooses to speak to us, whether it's through his word, through dreams, or audibly as he rips the roof off and maybe sets us straight, right? 
I'd be willing to bet that Joseph and Mary were praying for God to speak to them while they were waiting in Egypt. I imagine that they prayed, they waited, and they sought his, his will, and we should do the same. We need to hear his voice. Now in the Bible, when the word hear or hearing is used, oftentimes it, it doesn't just mean to hear with your ears, but to listen and obey. And so Joseph is our example because he was quick to obey the commands of the Lord. And that's what it means for the good shepherd's sheep to hear his voice. We listen and we obey just as Joseph did each time God spoke to him in a dream. Because when we're obedient, that's when we're abiding in Christ. And that's when we can bear much fruit, which brings glory to the Father. So first we need to hear his voice. And second, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to leave your comfort zone. Egypt was a place of comfort and safety for Joseph and his family, but they were called out to return to Israel. They had prayed and they had waited, and now it was time for them to return by obeying the command of, Lord, of the Lord. But they were returning to a place that would ultimately claim the life of Jesus. So I want to tell us all that God is calling you out of your comfort zone. He has a job for you to do, but it will cost you something. It might cost your time or your energy or your finances. It might cost your job or your relationships. Or it may even cost your life. It might be as simple as sharing the good news of Jesus with that person you've been avoiding. Or maybe it's as complicated as taking a stand. A stand that would shake up your life forever. But I can promise you this. The reward is worth it. And the reward is the fulfillment that comes from following a good, good father who has the best in mind for you, a plan better than you could ever imagine. And the reward is life forever. With Jesus of Nazareth, our King, there is no greater reward. Now, as I was finalizing my message this week, my son Nathaniel noticed that I was talking about leaving your comfort zone. And he ran off and said, I'll be right back. And he comes back and he says, I have this quote from a Minecraft book I read. Who knew a book on Minecraft could be full of wisdom? Uh, but he said this, or the book said this, growth doesn't come from a comfort zone, but from leaving it. And so this morning, I want to challenge us with a few things that I promise will bring growth in us as we leave our comfort zone. We need to pray, wait, and obey. Pray that God will speak to you. Get in the Word to discover what He has already said. Get in the Word to see who He is and what He calls all believers to. Seek His will in your life. Seek His righteousness and His kingdom. And I promise God will speak to you. And then wait for him to reveal his will to you. It's like Pastor Brian told us a few weeks ago. 
We need to remain faithful in the waiting. We need to remain dependent on him, abiding in and looking toward Christ. And then finally, we obey his call. And I think this is the part that takes the most faith. And I know in my life, in my walk with the Lord, I've learned that God often gives me just enough light on the path for me to take the next step of obedience. And maybe God will do that for you as well. But every time I take that step, no matter what fears I might have or anxieties or the feeling of who am I, Lord, when I take that step, I'm blown away every time by the blessings and the care and the love of my God. And so I just want to challenge us to pray, wait, and obey. And I promise you that if you respond in obedience, no matter how scary it might seem, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, our Emmanuel, he will be right there with you. Amen? And so let's pray. God, thank you again for this time together. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word that refreshes us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to bring us joy, to bring us life. You alone, Jesus, are worthy. So we give you all honor, glory, and praise right now. We crown you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.